This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Hi, I'm Mike Bush. I'm Paul New. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs by AOPA. Ask the AMPs is the show where we try to uh, answer your toughest maintenance questions. And so if you have a question, um, email us at podcasts at aopa.org for a chance to get on the show. Please follow or subscribe to be alerted when a new show comes out. And if you'd like to get on our mailing list, if you're in North America, the easiest way to do that is to text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777. Uh, and you can just get on our list with your with your smartphone. That's uh, text uh, the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777. If you're not in North America, that doesn't work. So if you're in Europe or something, you can go to the SavvyAviation.com website and click on the link to at the top of the page to get on the list. It's good to see you guys again. <laughs> I'm back from a long journey. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, traveled to Antarctica and back successfully. Oh, in the pictures, gonna, not going to show pitch, us any penguins. No, <laughs> I've I've seen way too many penguins. <laughs> I'm telling you, in the pictures you sent, mostly what I saw was cold. That just looked cold. It's still cold down there. It's not completely melted away. But um, all joking aside, highly recommended if you can ever make it. It's a fabulous trip. Beautiful place. It looked pretty amazing. Yeah. This- Especially the, the, the staff to guest ratio on your ship. <laughs> yeah. We were we were pretty pampered. I think we're sold on uh, elite cruises. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Might do it again. <laughs> well, I had an interesting uh, exchange with um, an STC holder who was concerned that he had identified a goodly number of 337 forms where people had used his STC to modify an aircraft without authorization. And the FARs require that you have get authorization from an STC holder before you're allowed to use the STC. So he prepared a list of, of tail numbers that, that had used this his STC without... Um, permission. And he went to his local FISDO and they basically blew him off. And they said, that's a civil matter. It's not something the FAA gets involved in. So he came to me and asked me what my opinion on all of that was. 
And and we started digging into the regulations, and it got it got kind of interesting. There's a regulation, it's uh, 91403D, that says no person may alter an aircraft, you know, in accordance with an STC without uh, getting permission from the STC holder. Uh, that's not exactly what it says, but that's the essence of what it says. So then, then the question is, what does that reg mean? No person may alter. So is is that a reg that, uh, that where the burden of compliance is on the mechanic, the person who is altering, uh, or or is it the burden on the aircraft owner? That's in Part ninety one. Uh, so yeah, the, the, you, you could <laughs> mm-hmm. say, well, it's in Part ninety one. Part ninety one speaks to aircraft owners. It really should be against the aircraft owner, but. But that's not exactly what the reg says. It says no person may alter. So, it, you know, it, can a mechanic get busted for for altering an aircraft in, in accordance with an STC where no permission has been granted? Is this a regulation that where the burden falls on mechanics or is it, a, is it one that where the burden falls on Owners or both, you know, and it's really it's really undefined. I did a search of legal interpretations, and there was only one legal interpretation regarding ninety one four hundred three D, and it it shed no light whatsoever on on this particular subject. So, as far as I know, this has never been posed to the office of chief counsel to find out exactly what this reg means. Now it turns out. That 91403D was enacted in order to comply with, it was enacted in 2006, by the way. Prior to 2006, there was no requirement to get permission in the the regs. But it was added to the regs in order to comply with a change to 49 USC something or other that, that actually came out in 1998. And 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 that change to the United States Code read differently than what what the the reg reads. It says no person may request an aircraft to be altered without permission, which makes it clear that 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 was 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 the owner. The owner is the person who requests the alteration, but he's not the one that makes the alteration. That's a strange way to state that. So it's it 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 is it is very it's it's very odd. And and but then the real threshold question is this. Suppose an aircraft is altered in accordance with what what, what this particular STC holder was referring to as a pirated copy of an STC, one that was that didn't have permission. Does that mean that the aircraft is unairworthy. Unairworthy, yeah. I knew that and, was coming. <laughs> and I, I took a poll of, of you know, we've got 30-some-odd IAs on, on the savvy staff, and, and so we, we took a poll about about how our IAs, in, in uh, when they're acting in their capacity as IAs, how they interpret what this stuff means. And the, the consensus was that, they would make sure that that permission was granted before they would 
make the alteration, but none of them would verify at each annual inspection of an aircraft that all of the STCs that were made on that aircraft had permission. So they interpreted that they had a burden to comply at the time of the alteration, but not at the time that they're making annual airworthiness determinations. They're willing to look the other way, is what you're saying. No. When somebody well, no, else did it's, it's, it. No, that's, the, the, the question is, again, it's a question of what does this regulation actually mean? So now the question comes down to, well, what does airworthy mean? Airworthy means that the, that the aircraft complies with its original or properly altered type design as, and is in condition for safe operation. So is an aircraft that is modified in accordance with a pirated copy of an STC where the alteration was, was scrupulously done in accordance with approved data, it's just that they didn't have permission to use it, is that properly altered or not? It's just a matter of who's not getting paid. I mean, the airplane is properly altered. It's just that the guy isn't getting compensated well, the, for all you the, know, the, fist, the engineering he did. interpretation, and, and actually my initial interpretation before I started digging into this and discovering this was a quagmire, was that this, yeah, this is, a, this is simply an intellectual property dispute between the STC holder and the owner, and it is a civil matter, and the FAA shouldn't be involved in it. But... I started digging around in there and, and it, it became clear as mud because, you know, the reg says one thing and the U.S. code says another thing. And neither of them say anything about airworthiness, whether, whether failure to. So if the aircraft is airworthy because it was uh, altered in accordance with approved data, just the data was obtained illicitly, but it was still approved data, it, it, is the aircraft airworthy or not and if it if it is airworthy then you know what is the penalty on an aircraft owner who does that is, is that something that the FAA should be involved in or is that something that lawyers should should settle in in civil court can i make it worse yeah sure <laughs> you can <Okay>. try <laughs> <laughs> so uh, i'm not sure exactly when it occurred that stc's began the stc holders would send with the STC a letter of permission. It was not always that so, that way. 2006 is when the reg became effective. That's when the reg became. And it was um, 1998 when it changed to the U.S. Code. Right. So back in the day, you could get, you would be an STC holder. There was no permission required. And I, I get calls and I have seen aircraft that would install an STC that they moved from one airplane to another. They, they would find a, a wrecked airplane, get the parts off the wrecked airplane, and put this system on a new airplane. I got a call about this uh, three weeks ago, and I'll leave out the details, but someone had a, an aircraft that had an engine conversion that had been paid for. And that airplane got destroyed. They wanted to move that conversion now to a different airplane and assume that since they had paid for this STC once, they now did not have to pay for it again, and it's on a whole different airplane. And this STC occurred, uh, it was granted in uh, 2012 or something like that. So it definitely falls under somebody's got to have permission. But in the old airplanes, a lot of the STs don't even exist, uh, or in the old STCs, 
So when we do an annual inspection, we, IAs in general, most of the STCs that we see, we have seen before. So we look at them and we're looking to see if it's been installed correctly. We look to see that there is documentation, a 337 form saying that it was installed. I would say I never look for a permission slip. Or the letter of permission. Yeah, that's that's or what the consensus of all yeah. the guys was that nobody does that at annual. And and when I perform an STC, what I send to the FAA, and this is kind of a little muddy as well, I will send the three three seven. I will send a copy of the cover sheet for the STC, and I will send a permission sheet. I don't send all the installation document and all that. That's to me. That's just nuts to include all that in a 337. You're talking about what you file with Oak City? What I file with Oak City. So it's basically just three pages. And I describe because all the instructions for the installation are part of the STC. So I describe that by reference, installed in accordance with. Boom. It's real simple. It is simple. Yeah. Now, if you didn't, if you didn't send the permission letter to Oak City, they wouldn't care, right? Nobody they wouldn't care. Anything. Oak City <laughs> didn't care about that. I only send it because it seems... Like it should be documented somewhere that that permission slip existed, in addition to it being in the aircraft paperwork. It does seem like that that's a civil matter, but I am curious that. So now we have the old STCs and the new ones, and there's no life limit on the ownership of the STC. It's not a patent, uh, so I, I assume it just goes on in per, perpetually. How did this STC holder find out how many uh, yeah. about these airplanes that this had been done? How, that, how I want to know that too. That? I don't know. Yeah, don't that's know. that's fascinating. That's a lot of work. To that's a that lot out. of work. I it's don't know not, how that would have happened. It's not in public record, so well, th- this th- this STC holder, who I'm not going to identify, his STCs are in a relatively small community, <laughs> so. Figuring this out probably was not beyond the realm of practicality. It's not like. It is very frustrating. I I can imagine for an STC holder, because especially simple STCs, where, you know, you can just nab a pair of sun visors off Mm -hmm. of somebody else's airplane and stick them on yours and say, installed per the STC. And more complicated ones, speed brakes or. Gap seals or something like that. Gap seals is one that used to come up a lot in our shop. And it's, um, it is intellectual. Someone spent a huge amount of time. Convincing the FAA. And cost getting an STC. Sure. And I'm, I'm working on one as we speak related to batteries. And I'm thinking, I'm looking ahead at what is this going to take? And dealing with the FA, not that that's a terrible thing, but it's, it's an arduous task. And people that go through that, they've earned it. Our first question is from Dennis, whose prop is taunting him. Go ahead, Dennis. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> hey, guys, love the podcast. I've got a 1975 Cardinal RG. I think, Colin, you're, you're pretty familiar with those. And it's got the the stock, you know, Macaulay um, prop on it, the uh, controllable prop. And I'm having a problem with <clears throat> underspeed on it. And every time I look up prop control issues, it's overspeed. And this is an underspeed issue. And 
what happens is when the engine gets warm, it won't make RPM anymore. So, you know, when the engine's cold and I and I go to uh, take off, it goes right to 2,700, governor holds it just fine. But if I'm doing some touch and goes or something like that, or I stop to get fuel on takeoff, I might only get 2,650, I might only get 2,620. So I sent the governor the governor had been i ran a couple hundred hours before i got it i sent it out had it checked out again they couldn't find anything wrong had it i ran by another shop they couldn't find anything wrong um they changed the speeder spring because they thought that that might be the issue still no joy and finally i just gave up and put an overhauled governor on it and it still happened and we, we just couldn't seem to figure it out and the shops kept telling me that well you need to overhaul your prop but the prop, it doesn't leak. There's no tip wobble. And they couldn't tell you why. Yeah, they, they couldn't <laughs> tell me why. And, and I've, I've been listening to Mike for a long time now, maybe a little too long. I don't know. And, you know, I'm like, <laughs> if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? There's, mm. there's nothing. Especially well, with props. And, and yeah. prop shops are like Roach Motel. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a Roach Motel. <laughs> props check in, but they never check out. <laughs> Love it. So, you know, I was just kind of deathly afraid of sending this thing in without sort of a definitive reason. So finally at, at Oshkosh last year, I went into Macaulay booth and I talked to one of the tech reps. And, and of course, he says, well, you need to send your prop in. And, <laughs> <Yeah>. and uh, <laughs> of, of course, OK. And then he but he gave me the actual first reason I've heard a good reason I've heard why. He said there's a spring in there. And. So, of course, the governor, in order to bring the RPM down, the governor is is putting out oil pressure, and that's what changes the pitch of your prop, actually brings your RPM down. That spring pushes back against that. And he said those springs can sort of take a set and sort of weaken over time. And what's happening is because I've got these, you know, Iran governors and overhauled governors, they cannot, you know, they're, they're putting out a, a good load of oil, and they cannot actually cut the pressure enough to to let that spring put the prop into high pitch. So he suggested, nope, send your prop in and, and get, get the spring replaced. So that actually made sense to me. So the, the, I guess the, the questions I had for you guys is, first of all, have you heard of this before? Because I can't seem to find any reference. I've never heard of this before. And second of all, I am an ANPIA. I do have the Macaulay manual. Is this something that I can do in the field or is it, is it, you know, sheer lunacy to crack into my propeller that doesn't have to go into a shop? You can't open that well, thing you, up. You can't, so you, you can't do it legally <laughs> and, and you can't do it practically because it requires a special tool. When the spring is decompressed, it, it, it's about six feet long. <laughs> it's a huge thing. <laughs> six feet and long. They, and they have, they, they have this tool that consists of a very long threaded rod that, that they use to, to gracefully. To wind it up. Yeah, to, to decompress it and then recompress it when it goes back together. So, so do springs really take sets? I've never heard that before. I've never heard that yeah. either. I, I haven't mean, either. It, it, it's sort of semi-plausible, I suppose, yeah. but... You think um, of the temperature of the spring changes, so it's, I don't know if you would call it elasticity. Cool. It's not no. that well, much. Cold, I mean, versus, cold versus hot, is what I'm saying. The, I mean, it can't, it can't be running any forms. hotter than oil temperature, and yeah. oil temperature never... It doesn't right. seem like a huge range of temperatures. Degrees. I'm just thinking in terms of its initial temperature versus its oil-induced temperature. There is a, a difference... 
which may change how the spring responds. Don't know. I haven't thought through that, but at the risk of exposure or not exposure, uh, anyway, my airplane does the same thing. There. My airplane <laughs> does the same thing too. So, yeah. <laughs> and so what I did is turned up the governor a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I did that. But the, I guess then the problem I have is I'm on a cold takeoff, I'm overspeeding slightly. And, you know, I know Lycoming does allow you a little bit of an overspeed and, and I can, you know, just reach down with the, the, the prop lever and cut it back a little bit. But, but it's um, yeah, and, and it just sort of annoys me. Well, isn't the rule that anything less than a 5% overspeed is, yeah. is pretty yeah. much a non And I verified that by talking to prop and, shops. And a yeah. 5% overspeed is... Um, it's really no big deal. Of course, my JPI goes red RPM and things start so. flashing. But yeah, it's really no big deal to go to 20 or even 30 RPM over on our airplanes. So I, I've tried not to worry about it. My prop also surges. And you mentioned that as well in your write-up. And I would love to figure out what's causing the surging because it never used to do that. I, the surging, because I see this a lot on the Cirrus, the 22 T's, where the prop governor's fixed at 2,500. And if the airplane's been sitting for a bit, like a couple of days, that first throttle up, you have to be really slow on the last bit of throttle up because the prop is just, it's hunting. And the prop governor, I mean, think, they haven't changed much in a really long time. It's all mechanical. There's no closed loop uh, electronic system that's monitoring the RPM and making all these little fine adjustments for you. And if you have to give that prop governor a chance, not only for the speeder spring, the fly weights to reposition, the valve moves, then the oil goes through the crankshaft, then it gets to the prop. All this stuff takes time to occur. If you want to know, oh, this is this drove my dad nuts. The first time we got a digital tachometer on an airplane, this is a really long time ago, is one of those, the P1000 or the H1000, Horizon made it. Yeah. 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 And it, it included that last digit of the RPM. <laughs> and in steady flight, that last digit moves all the time. Well, those things, they were the most phenomenal tachometers ever because they didn't measure RPM, they counted RPM, which is way better than measuring anything. If you can count it, it's better than measuring it. So it was very accurate, but you always had this number that was changing. And that's when I realized, you know, that RPM is moving up and down, plus or minus 10 RPM. And I thought, well, that's some inaccuracy or something. But the truth is, a lot of it has to do with the airplane moving up and down and the prop governor continually trying to manage that RPM, and there's this lag in that effort. And you'll notice all the new prop, the RPM displays, blank off that last digit to a zero. And if you have analog tachometer, the needle width is 50 RPM. Yeah, so you never saw it. It's it, yeah, but nothing I can, changed. You I just can now hear see it. it and feel it. Oh, that's and a lot. I didn't used to. Now, I did look up a little bit. It does depend what kind of governor you have. Um, and Dennis, you didn't mention, was it a Macaulay governor? I have a Macaulay governor. And mine only does it when it's warm. So, yeah, I, you know, weird. I know it's pretty common to get surging when they're cold. cold. Yeah. All the reasons Paul just, just uh, outlined. But 
mine, when it's cold, it's, it's rock solid. It's when it gets warm that I get that surging and only trying to get max RPM. When I cut it back to cruise, man, it, it holds 24, 25, wherever I set it, it'll oh, hold pretty rock solid. I wonder if it's fighting between the prop governor and the low pitch stops. Like a harmonic? Going no, on. not a harmonic, but you're right on that edge of... It's just a feedback. You're, you're using the low-pitch stops, and then the prop governor is yeah, saying... Unfortunately, un, it's a minor adjustment to increase the pitch, but it's just kind of back and forth. But on a Macaulay, you can't adjust the stop in the right. field the way you can. Only on, on the Hartzell. Uh, oh, is Hartzell. that right? Oh, okay. Yeah, and, and actually, my stops, I want to say, they're probably at like 2680, because when you do a static run-up, it'll, it'll go to that that RPM. And then you can actually tell when it comes off the stops. Um, sure. And, and when it's warm, when it comes off the stops, it actually drags the RPM down, which is really kind of weird. There was a surface letter that came, I, I read about this right before the podcast that came out on the Macaulay governor, something about the flyweight assembly, but it came out in 2002. And if you've had yours overhauled multiple times recently, it seems like they should be complying with that. But it would cause um, surging in the governor. So that's, and, and that, that service letter's on the uh, CFO site if you look in the tech section. Yeah, and there, there was another service letter in 2018 that was also, com- you know, had to do with the flyweights and the speeder spring that was also complied with. So, you know, my, the Macaulay tech rep said the surging was the result of of sort of it bouncing off of that spring. So the, you know, the governor is trying to cut back the spring pushes and the governor lets a little more oil out and it pushes back. And it was just sort of setting up a, a back and forth. They, they described it as a bouncing, which again, kind of made sense other than this is the first time I've ever heard it. <laughs> Wait, so they're giving you an explanation of a problem they haven't heard before? Well, he's, he seemed to think he, he said he had heard of it before, Okay, but okay. I can find no reference of it anywhere else. And my yeah. day job, I work for an OEM. I ought to believe the OEMs, but. Hey, I got an idea. Let, let, let's just blank off one more digit off that tag. There you go. <laughs> well, and I, so I do have a, a, a horizon like Paul and I have an 830, a JPI 830. And I did notice, yes, that the. The eight, you know, when when I get tired of looking at those digits uh, on the horizon, I just move my scan up, and that solves a lot of my issues. <laughs> you know, a little piece of tape right over that one spot, I, I think, would just be marvelous. You you know, I uh, my prop never used to surge, and after I overhauled my engine, I think I sent the governor and the prop out for overhaul at the same time, and now oh, it's surging. Uh, yeah, and I'm. Didn't we tell you not to do that? I am guilty of saying, "Well, it, it's not hurting anything. I'm just going to live with it." But um, something's different, you know. And and it would be really nice to know. And it might be, like, like you're saying, the props okay, the governor's okay, the engine's okay. But when you put them all together, they start fighting each other. And who's going to take ownership for that and kind of fix it? You know, the prop guys are going to point to the governor guys. The governor's going to point to the prop and. And you're you're left with somebody who's got to be brilliant to kind of like figure it all out. It's a really hard thing when you have interfaces between systems on an airplane, appliances on the engine, and it's there's no real clear instruction about how they're supposed to work together. So I've just just chosen to live with it and deal with other problems. But um, I think it's going to be really hard. You, I would vote not to send your prop in because, like Mike says, as soon as your prop goes in. 
everything's got to be replaced. There's corrosion on the bearings, you know, and you're in for a big ticket. And as long as it's working within acceptable bounds, I would just live with it myself. Well, I appreciate it, guys. This one, um, I've been living with it for about three years now, and I guess I'm going to have to live with it a little longer, but it's uh, it, it's not the it's not the end of the world. If I do figure out what's wrong, I'll post it to CFO and we can all talk but about it. It would be okay to, to crank up the speed a little bit so you're a few percent over when, on, on, on a cold takeoff and then you wouldn't then be just, as far under on a warm takeoff. And then just moderate it yourself. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to admit to have doing that on a, on a public forum, but right. you know, in theory, <laughs> that, in theory that, that might have um, resolved In a solution the in the past, yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Roger that. <laughs> Good All question, right. Dennis. Well, it's great to meet you, Dennis, and um, love the airplane, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic plane. Yeah, really is. So Great, okay. thanks, guys. I really appreciate the, uh, the help. Okay. All right, Dennis. All right. Good luck. Take care. So our next question is from Luis, who is thinking about uh, recurrency in the AMP world, which is a kind of a thing we don't ever think about like pilots do. But go ahead, Luis. Let us know what's going on. Well, thanks for having me on the show, guys. Um, Mike, uh, you inspire me to uh, get my own airplane, uh, making it look like it's more affordable than than I initially thought. So I really, really thank you and the podcast. All right, so, uh, real quick, I got my AMP in high school uh, out of, in New York City. And then I went to college, uh, went to join the Air Force, uh, flew airplanes. I'm still flying airplanes. And I'm approaching my retirement air, uh, time with the Air Force and looking to buy my own airplane. But I've noticed that I am not current on being an AMP. So I want to save money and do some of the maintenance myself. Uh, but I don't know how I can... Uh, Reestablish currency on wrenching. You have to be supervised or served as a mechanic or technically supervised other mechanics for six months. So, so yeah, my question would be initially on that on A, the administrator has found that I am able to do the work. How do I how do I prove that? Well, you have an A and P. So you're certificated. And I think that's sufficient in part. So there's there's the you're certificated and you're qualified. And then actually have the experience doing it. So I don't know. Have you ever changed a tire on an airplane? <laughs> and I don't mean that. <laughs> 20 years ago at that, that AMP, you know, when I was going through high school. Not in the last it, it still 24 counts. months. Not in the last 24 months. It does. No, no, no. It's so it doesn't say that within the last 24 months, you have to have changed a tire to be current on changing tires. You have to, as a mechanic, if I changed a tire, I got my AMP however many decades ago I got it, and I changed the tire under the supervision of a mechanic that had changed the tire before, and he obviously did it under some other mechanic that had changed the tire. So then I am current for changing a tire. There isn't a time frame in which that me changing a tire runs out. So it's not saying that you have to go back and perform all of these individual tasks again. Now, if you're going to do a task that you've never done before, then yeah, you have to have supervision for that. What I would say to be current, if you're going to buy an airplane, you may as well get current on your airplane. So perform a task, find an A&P somewhere that will come by and check your work. They don't have to physically be standing there when you do the work to supervise the work. Matter of fact, I think these days you could even 
make a good argument for a uh, a video call for someone to look at the work you're doing and chalk that up for your recurrency or it's not even do we want to call it currency? I guess it is. It's recent experience. It's not really currency. Paul, let me ask a question. If Luis swung wrenches on his airplane for six months doing stuff that he's allowed to do under his preventive maintenance authority. Oh, yeah. Does that work count towards sure. the currency? Yeah, as a mechanic, when I change a tire, which is preventive maintenance, it's it's considered maintenance. Uh, not considered, but I mean, I write it up as maintenance. But, but Lewis sure. is allowed to change a tire even if he's not yeah, absolutely. current. Because That's right. he's doing it under his preventive maintenance Clean authority. He's plugs, allowed to change the oil. Change spark plugs and all that stuff. the oil and all of, all of the other stuff that owners are allowed to do under their preventive maintenance authority. So does that, that stuff count as current? Sure. So you, so you could get, so you could get recurrent that way with, yeah. without any supervision, right? Yeah, absolutely. And then if there were things that you needed to do that you've never done before and you're not really sure, of course you would look for somebody to guide you through that when you did it, but you'd be legal just getting, you know, guidance. But I mean, that, that, that reg that says that an A&P is, is not supposed to do something he's never done before except under supervision, that... That's a whole different thing. That that mm-hmm. that reg, nobody ever pays attention to. <laughs> well. Until okay. something goes wrong. So the, the question that I'm looking here, and in paragraph B, it says, for he has, of course, they have to get rid of the he part. They've got a big program to get rid of... Uh, all the gender stuff. But anyway, so he has for at least six months. And I would assume that they mean six months working full time, but they're not real specific. Yeah, I, don't so, think that, I don't think that it, that, that it means that. No, but that's, that's the way it seems to read when I look at it, that for at least he has for at least six months served as. So is that part-time, full-time? I wouldn't worry about it. I would do maintenance on the airplane that you're going to buy, record what you've done. Like Mike was saying, preventive maintenance. If you do something you've never done before, get it checked. I think that's a great way to go about it. Don't dive into an engine change, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> right <laughs> or off an the overhaul. bat. No. Let, let's don't change a cylinder right off the bat. Yeah, but. That's, sounds months. reasonable. So just <laughs> to be clear, so there's nothing that I need to log. Just the fact that I'm logging in the logbook saying, hey, I, I performed this on this day and that starts my clock. And then six months later, I, I should so. be GTG. Yeah. 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 They're not going to come check. Okay. No, they're not. The, the only time check. that they're going to come check is when you is crash if, the plane. <laughs> if there's an accident. Yeah. Don't do that and you're fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's always if there's money yeah. involved. Insurance. Don't wreck the airplane. <laughs> yeah. Well, great question, Lewis. So yeah. Thanks for having me. I appreciate yeah. it. Okay. We love talking about anything that's going to bring more mechanics into, that's into right. the world <laughs> or back. I'm working on it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. See you. Bye. Our next question is from Jeff, who is trying to solve his engine's demons. Are we doing an, an exorcism here or what's up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope so. I've okay. lived with this issue ever since I finished it. It's, it's the uh, PZL Franklin engine, a four-cylinder, the 235 variant that I have on my home-built Pulver Junior Ace. And ever since I run that thing from brand new in 2000, 
Uh, it's never run up to a static RPM of 2,800 advertised. I can't get it over uh, usually uh, 2,100 on takeoff. Any more throttle than that, it just uh, falters and kills the engine. The engine dies. But as soon as you back off on the throttle, it resumes power at that about 2,100 level. Now, it's a hundred, supposedly 125-horse engine. The Cobra Junior Race will fly on 85. So I basically just have derated the engine and never pushed it beyond <laughs> the 2100 and, and have a lot of fun with it. I have uh, 390 hours on it now. Mostly it was, uh, I changed carburetors. Um, I tried an 0290 carburetor on it. Uh, same issues, uh, exact same issues. It, it just falters at 2100, 2150 or so. Uh, I changed props three times. So I'm currently running a 7644 Sensenich wooden prop. Uh, it gave me another 150 RPM from my previous 46-inch pitch, but that's I guess that's what you're supposed to get anyway when you reduce the uh, pitch. And uh, so I've, I've narrowed it down to uh, either my homemade exhaust has created too much back pressure at the higher RPM, or um, there's been some rumors that PZL didn't carefully mark their uh, camshafts gears and that when they assembled the engine, they, they made them one tooth off uh, in the markings. And so the internal timing uh, might be off. And I was wondering, is there a way for me to determine, uh, I mean, is that whether or not it's an induction problem or an ignition problem or a, uh, a breathing problem with the engine, or is it just internally timed wrong? What do you guys think? Well, let me Let me ask a question first, because I have a wonderful feeling that Colleen has done some some good research and study, but just from a mechanic standpoint, I just want to understand because I don't know anything about Franklin engines, so I, I don't. I haven't ever worked on one. It, it's an engine, I get it. But you're saying that the advertised static RPM should make it to 2800. Is that also the red line of the engine? Yes. Yeah. And so, but from the literature I've read. Yeah. Okay, so in my in my little mechanic brain doing ground run-ups on Cessna 150s and Cherokees and that sort of thing, you'll have a 2,700 RPM redline, but static RPM, at best, you're going to get like 2,300 just because you, you're you not unloading the prop going forward. In flight, you can get the 2,700 because you're pulling the airplane forward. So that really struck me that you actually anticipate getting 2,800 on a static run which makes me think you're going to go way past that in flight at full power. And he doesn't. And you don't. So you're it not stalls. even. It stalls. It dies. Yeah. So no, it, you know, even, in, even in level flight, I can't push it. I can sneak it up to about 2,300, and that's, that's, it, that's it. it. Yeah. Wow. Then again, it falters. Why would it falter? Well, one, one, thing that, one thing that kind of bothered me when I was reading this over was, that you've got the thing, the the time ignition timing set to thirty two degrees. Yeah, that's crazy. That center, that's that incredibly standard? aggressive. But that's per the manufacturer. See, I, I knew Colleen would know. I looked it up. It, it's it is. I've never heard of thirty two, but that's what they say on slick or Bendix Max. Yeah, I always thought too, but uh, because it was a manufactured call out, I didn't want to mess with that and have some detonation and ruin the thing. I would back it off. 
Just no, because no, no. That, that, that'd be the exact opposite. You know, if you, it, 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 the more advanced the timing, the the less the detonation margin. Yeah, I would just as an experiment, I would want to reduce that, that timing. to twenty five or something. Yeah, set it happens. to twenty five, something perfectly reasonable, and see what you get. PZL changed the induction system on the, the traditional Franklin engine that was U.S. produced, and from the. Uh, the a manifold situation on the sides of the uh, cylinders and the carburetor mounted in the back of the engine. They went to a, a continental style spider and uh, a low slung carburetor. And some people have said, yeah, the thing, the thing never has breathed properly because of that. Hmm. But others say, yeah, there's no issue, but there's, there's so few of these engines around and uh, I yeah. haven't been able to find anybody who's willing to share or have overcome this particular situation. So others that have this engine have similar problems? Um, there has been, when you talk to Southern Arrow guys and, and uh, a few online situations, there have been. And uh, the last one I read that they had to change the internal timing, one tooth on the uh, cam gear. It was uh, oh. not set right. And so I, they also did some research and they gave me a, a uh, timing of 104 degrees on the intake center line uh, with the valve opened at 0. 0.336 uh, inches. And have you checked that yet? I have not because that's, I just found that out. I'm a snowbird down here in Florida and I haven't <laughs> had access to my hangar. But I will in April. Yeah, I would, I would want to check that. I would want to check the mag timing. If you find the cam timing is correct, then boy, 30-something degrees advanced timing. Mag timing and see what, yeah. if, that, if that helps. I, I would do that. And, and your, your experimental built exhaust system, I can't see where that would cause the engine to get to a certain RPM and just totally choke. I can see where it would slowly become, it just wouldn't make power. But nevertheless, you know, you have to have good, good flow. You could just put some straight pipes on it. And just to see what it does on ground runs, that'd be easy enough. You could just take the exhaust off, but that's kind of harsh. It's really loud, too. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, that's kind of where I was could, headed, but I was could you just wondering do a if you see anything run? like that. You think you could just do a test run with the exhaust off with and, and the cowlings taken off? Or, yeah, or, that's what or I would was it, suggesting. Would it, would, it, yeah. would it burn ignition wires and stuff for that uncontained exhaust coming out there? Uh, I could, I could arrange for that. I was just wor more worried about, uh, like, uh, uh, warping a valve, exhaust valve or something from the, the lack of a shield. Oh, that would that wouldn't affect the exhaust valves at all. No, th they don't know. And you're not going to run it long enough. You know, you're just going to fire it up, get it warmed up, go to full throttle, see if it makes a difference and back it off. Where are your headphones? <laughs> you say the fuel cells are in the wing roots of this aircraft. That's what you Correct. wrote. And I, I do run a, a boost pump. Oh, you do? Okay. I was wondering if you had adequate fuel pressure, but that sounds like that should be plenty for... The yeah. That was one of the first things I tried was uh, maybe I'm not keeping the right head of fuel in well, the carburetor. It's, it's a high-wing airplane, right? So Yeah. So it's got head pressure. So it would probably have enough head pressure just from gravity feed. Yeah. It seems to run just as well with or without the boost. I, I just use it on takeoff and landings. I think you've got a couple of good things to go try. Cam timing, yeah, mag timing, and exhaust. Those are three good ones. Yeah. 
troubleshooting is always like that. It's a process of elimination. You think of, you make a list of all the things that could be wrong and then you just one by one rule them in or rule them out. Yeah, without changing expensive parts. But at least you it's can still possible. fly in the and meantime. without changing <laughs> more than one thing at a time. <laughs> Luckily, it's installed on an airplane that doesn't need all that power. So. Yeah, I was going to say, if, 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 this, if this was a certificated aircraft, it would be unairworthy. Yeah, right, because it's not making rated power. But but an experimental aircraft, the, air, it is. the airworthy <laughs> is not a defined word for yeah, we like that. aircraft. <laughs> I, I, I do want to, Mike, Mike made a comment almost in passing, but it is really important to troubleshooting one change at a time. Don't do two or three things because if you get a different result that isn't a fix, you won't have any clue. And so then you have to put it all back and start again. So one change at a time. Good point. Yep. Roger that. All right. All right. And Mike, I enjoyed your book very much, Manifesto. Appreciate that. He's got more. He's got more. Keep going. Yeah, I, I, I noticed <laughs> that now. I was looking it up. Well, okay, Jeff, guys. It. Well, thanks very much. Yeah, appreciate the call. Let us know how the exorcism goes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Boy, if this works, I'd be so happy. Yeah, yeah. I'll bet. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're on the right track. All right. Thanks, okay, Jeff. guys. <laughs> Bye-bye. We'll thanks you. very much. Our next question is from Josh, who is wondering if we're too eager to get rid of leaded fuel. Go ahead, Josh. Yeah, good morning. Uh, so I've been curious in all the reading I've been doing about the, the transition to unleaded avgas. Uh, there's been no mention at all about some of the, the benefits of lead. Um, the big one, of course, being that it boosts octane. But the other one that I've heard ever since I started flying was uh, in relation to as a lubricant for your valves which has always sounded a little strange to me, knowing all the, the troubles that lead causes for valves. And uh, so I wanted to get your guys' take on that. And um, as I said, that's not something that I've heard discussed at all. What a timely question. One man's lubricant is another man's deposit, as, right? As, as it happened, <laughs> I, I, I wrote a recent one of my columns for AOPA Pilot on this subject. It, it is kind of interesting. Um, the most that's known about this actually comes from automotive situation where we're back in the 1970s, the EPA basically banned leaded MOGAS and all of the cars had to switch over to unleaded fuel. And cars that were built in the early 60s and earlier than that had a problem with unleaded fuel. They, whereas cars that were built in the 70s and after didn't have a problem. And the difference was that the later model cars had valve seat inserts that were hardened, whereas the earlier cars either had unhardened valve seat inserts or didn't have valve seat inserts at all and actually had the valve seat simply machined into the cylinder head casting. And the problem was that the when the valve closes into the seat, the two surfaces can can have what's called micro welding. Uh, and then when the valve opens or when it rotates, it, it breaks the micro welds and a little piece of material comes off and repeat that thousands and thousands of times and you wind up 
getting what's called recession of the of the valve seat. So to prevent recession of the valve seat, there are two different things that you can do. One, one is you can insert some sort of chemical that inhibits the microwelding, and it there, there's some pretty good evidence that tetraethyl lead is effective at, at reducing microwelding. And the other is that you can make the the seed out of hardened material that isn't susceptible to the microwelding. So when we look at aircraft engines, Lycoming switched to hardened valve seats quite a long time ago, back in the 90s. Uh, Continental didn't switch to hardened valve seats until much more recently, early 2000s. So there's a possibility that older cylinders that don't have hardened seats, and that would almost all be continental cylinders because presumably all the Lycoming cylinders that didn't have hardened seats are long gone by now. It is possible that some of the older continental cylinders will would have a, have problems with with valve seat recession. Presumably, the newer ones don't. We're we're involved. So I say we. My company Savvy uh, is involved with AOPA in this experiment that they're doing with what they call the the, the two fuels one airplane Baron that they are now operating with. Um, 100 low lead in 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 the right tank and uh, G100 UL and leaded the, the unleaded gammy fuel in the left tank and um, the airplane is is being surveilled very very closely with frequent bore scope imaging and and oil analysis and. And one of the things that we're doing, and Paul was heavily involved in this, is accurately measuring valve seat recession in order to determine whether there's any greater recession on the side using the unleaded gammy fuel than there is on the side that's using the leaded avgas. And Paul actually engineered a special measuring appliance and we did the baseline measurements just the other day, a few days ago, where we're actually measuring exactly how high up the valve stem uh, extends out of the cylinder head uh, to the nearest thousandths or half a thousandths. Actually, yeah, you're getting measurements yeah. to the nearest half thousandth of an inch. It's a very, very accurate measurement. And we're going to be doing, repeating this procedure every few hundred hours to determine whether there's any increase in valve seat recession using the, the, the G100UL. Theoretically, those cylinders, because the engines were overhauled fairly recently, um, the, actually, I think the cylinders on those engines are superior millenniums. I think they're not continental cylinders. I think they're superior millenniums. But at any rate, we'll, we'll see how that works out over time, and when we're measuring it very, very accurately. The superior engine, I assume, has hardened valve seats. Though we assume that. I guess we're yeah, going to find sure. out. Huh? We're going to okay. find out. <laughs> and it's also kind of interesting that this micro-welding problem with, with, where the valve is pressing up against the seat, 
the amount of microwelding is is determined by two different factors. One, one factor is how quickly the valve closes against the seat, kind of the impact <laughs> forces. And the, and the second is how, let's say, firmly the valve is being held against the seat during the, the, the peak pressure portion of the combustion event. In automotive engines, the impact is the probably the dominant factor because those are very high revving engines and the valves open and close very rapidly. In aircraft engines, the valves open and close very slowly because they're very slow turning engines. And so the predominant, and, and the valves are much bigger. So the predominant uh, factor for aircraft engines is uh, how firmly the valve is being held against the seat by combustion forces. And you know, I, I did a back-of-the-envelope calculation on exactly what those forces are because the peak pressure in a cylinder is typically something like 800 PSI and the exhaust valve has a surface area of roughly one square inch. <laughs> so there's 800 PSI force on the valve. Then, then you calculate what the contact area is, the valve to the seat, and and that, that might be maybe a, a a tenth of a square inch or something on that order. And, and so the the force that holding the valve against the seat, you know, would be something on the order of 10,000 PSI or something, which is really pretty modest. The compression strength of any steel is considerably greater than that. And so at any rate, it, 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 it doesn't, the seat doesn't have to be terribly hard in order to be able to to sustain those kinds of um, the forces that the that the valve is pressing against the seat, but anyway, we're we're doing these very accurate measurements with the uh, with the AOPA two fuels Marin, and we'll we'll have some definitive information about whether it's going to be a problem. I know the FAA did a hundred and hundred and fifty hour side by side test some years ago involving a couple of Lycoming O320s where they were running one on 100 low lead and the other one on one of the 100 octane unleaded uh, PAFI candidate fuels. And uh, they were measuring valve recession very accurately in the O320 and found no increase whatsoever in in valve seat recession on uh, during that 150-hour test. You know, I've heard the thing about lead being a lubricant for a long time. Back in the day, my dad was a mechanical engineer for Phillips 66, like way back in the day in the 50s. And he calculated octane ratings, one of his jobs, and, you know, how much lead to put in the fuel to get the proper response. And I remember way back when asking him questions about that. And what I heard from him that I've also heard from several other sometimes attendees in some of my classes that happen to be in this business, that the primary function of the lead is to control the speed of the flame front as a detonation issue. But in none of those conversations ever did anyone ever say anything about lubrication. And I have I've yet to be able to find someone that can tell me, and, and maybe it's out there, but I just have not heard anyone that knows, you know, the people that are involved in that industry explain 
how and why we ever started talking about lead as a lubricant. Well, it's a misnomer. I mean, I think what Mike is saying, it's a cushioning thing for, or, or it reduces this micro welding and people don't know what micro welding is, but they understand lubrication. So they're using that word. Yeah. I mean, I see that, but how did we ever get, I don't know. And, and I've heard it from some very knowledgeable people, not specifically knowledgeable to engine combustion events and that sort of thing, but they repeat, oh yeah, you got to have it for lubrication. And I, I'm struggling to see how that ever got started. All I can say is I just removed the prop from my Lancer and the sludge in the, <laughs> yeah. in the crankshaft, the hollow crankshaft was, I, that's yeah. not the, the lubricant that least. I want in my it, engine. It looks yeah, like yeah. graphite. Centrifuges the, the, the yeah. lead. Well, just look at it as a, as a, as a oil separator, you know, it separates the heavy parts from the from the light parts, so it's like a filter. It's great. Yeah, you just and need it's to pull preventing the prop my off. prop from operating properly. You <laughs> yeah. know, I mean, it's ugly, and I don't even want to touch it. It's so ugly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've seen a couple of the preliminary borescope images from the AOPA Baron, um, and the, the, those cylinders haven't run very long yet, but. Already, the difference that you can see in the borescope images is very dramatic. The engine running on G100UL, everything is just clean as a whistle in there. And I think the bottom line is um, it's not an old wives' tale, Josh. It's actually true, but the word lubricant is a little bit of a stretch. It's, it's more of a chemical protectant for the valves. Yeah. And, and that's the benefit. Again, we don't lead. think it should be a problem in cylinders that have hardened valve seat inserts. But we're putting that to the test right now. Yeah. On that note, we're going to put a bow on this episode. Hopefully, we got a few things right. Let us know what you think. Keep sending us your tricky questions. We look forward to hearing from you. You can always email us at podcasts at aopa.org. See ya. Bye-bye, everybody.